Welcome to Sound Mind. Well, here is part two of my conversation with Ed Carroll. It is also episode 25, so thanks so much for helping Sound Mind reach that milestone. Without further ado, let's continue. We've never needed art more, in my opinion, although every generation would probably say that. But there's still a need, but the way we're structured right now, it's going to come in unforeseen packaging to those who really have the craft and have spent the enormous amount of time creating their craft, and then who are perceptive enough to not only have a wide range in their, their, their art that can connect disparate dots, but also have their nose to the wind and can see within what's in front of them the possibilities. Be supple and flexible with what's changing. Do you think that it's harder now with all this talk about, again, the wage floor or a lot of the older Broadway guys and recording guys talk about how much work there used to be, and maybe this is just a cliche. Maybe every no, generation says it. I don't think so. I think it's a reality. You think it's actually harder. When I was free- freelancing in New York City back in the 70s and early 80s, uh, two, three service days were absolutely the norm. And now a two or three service week is. So, what do we do? I'm almost asking this for me. It makes well, sure. It and makes us in our generation feel a little, a little hopeless sometimes. Well, no, <laughs> it shouldn't because you're yeah. you play the horn, which you have to have tremendous courage to play. You're a deeper musician than the common hornist because I know that you're, you know, you do songwriting and you, you you're involved in other genres besides you know, the Mozart concerti. Okay, okay, um, but what about people listening too? What if I, all of those things are great. I I talk to people though and it, yeah, it's, I, I, I almost chalked it up to just, I don't want to say older people, but let's say people in their 50s and 60s who say, oh, this, you know, music back in my day in the 50s and 60s, 70s, wherever, real music came from the 70s and now the, the music people are making isn't as good, and which I almost never agree with. I almost chalked up those, those talks about how much work there used to be almost in terms of uh, like generational like pompousness, like, oh, there used to be so much more work, but now I'm sort of seeing it as a reality. Like, what, no, what I, do I, you do about that? Well, uh, to address the first point, you know, our, our, my parents and my friends' parents, when rock and roll started, you know, all thought, ah, this is crap. Yeah, and, you of course. Know. And so that has always been so. There's always, we, we rebel against what we don't understand. Uh, I become a little bit, uh, change affects me differently now than it, it, it did when I was younger. When a gas station changes, and becomes a gas station convenience store, it bothers me. It shouldn't. It's just what it is. <laughs> and, you know, there's always evolution. I'm befuddled by a lot of technology. I have a friend I, that I spent a few days with in Oakland recently 
who has a Tesla 3, and this car for me is my worst nightmare. Not that it's an electric car, I think that's brilliant, but that the whole thing is controlled. The only thing that you have on the, you know, the, the panel in front of you is an iPad. And oh yeah, it's a laptop is, with wheels. Yeah, and it's not even a laptop because it doesn't have a keyboard. Yeah, it's an iPad or it's a smartphone with wheels. And uh, I'm so much more comfortable with what I know I'd rather start the car with an ignition key. So, so there are these qualitative generational shifts and all of, all of us are guilty of this. Ours is better, the next generation doesn't understand, but there are these quantitative shifts in pay and wage and benefits right. and all of these things that... The reality of American culture. Yeah. American culture has evolved tremendously over my lifetime. Do you think it will come back? Do you think artists will find a way to make the kind of gig money they were making if if the artists are strong enough and and develop power, powerful voices of course there are still you know musicians in this country outside of the symphony orchestras that are making a lot of money but they're they're creating their own worlds they're creating their own environments and maybe you know you're one of the lucky few that wins an audition and Spend the rest of your time in the San Francisco Symphony, and that that could be a pleasure too if you have that type of mentality. The the great orchestras aren't going away, that I see, but the free the freelance world of New York City, with the 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 cost of living in New York City, musicians can't live in Manhattan successfully anymore. And now Brooklyn's getting to be this way. And so all of a sudden, you know, even if there was all that work for the amount of money that you're, you're, you're spending on transportation and your rent, maybe you still couldn't make it there. Music in Italy has changed tremendously because Italy is artistically rapidly becoming a theme park a Renaissance theme park. You, know, you go to these beautiful, well-kept, pristine places like Firenze, Venezia, you know, and, and they're overwhelmed by tourists that are all there to hear Quattro Stagioni, you know. And so the days of Luigi Nono are almost disappearing in Italy and being replaced by music for tourism, a Disney theme park. Now that's a harsh judgment and I, I shouldn't make it. And to try to make a, a, a tie, a correlation to a city like New York is, is reckless. But there are far fewer organizations making music in New York than there were during my time there. That doesn't mean that only the, the good survive. It's just that Broadway's become Broadway. It's very much part of American culture. The Met and the Philharmonic, which aren't really part of American culture, it's harder for them now. But they're still there. They're still doing all right. Conventional jazz, Jazz in the clubs of bebop jazz and, and this type of music, 
that's more or less gone away. And it's being replaced by other types of music that are fusions of all sorts of cultures. And people are still figuring it out, and, and, which is probably very good and probably very natural and, and needs to be so. Yeah. But the arts change. The arts are always changing. I don't think we have to curate the arts. We can, and we certainly don't want to lose the, the music of Debussy and Ravel, the music of our greatest geniuses for the sake of evolution, but we're evolving as a culture and we have to acknowledge that and we have to, to move in tandem with that. Do you have any social media you'd like to plug? Any events coming up you'd like to plug? Any programs you'd like to let people know about? Well, I, I do feel very, very strongly about Chosen Vale as a place where we're viewing the continuum of music. People have a, a misconception, actually, in the trumpet community about what Chosen Vale is because they think of it as being a new music program, and it's not. It's a comprehensive program that we look at early music and we look at the music that our students are playing. And whatever it is that they bring there that they want to, to, to study and, and look at in depth, we do that music. On the other hand, because of our, our participants are often so evolved, they're looking at contemporary music because they've already passed through the, you know, the other periods and the standard repertory. And so these are people that are out trying to, to make a new mark in, in music. And so they're doing that almost exclusively with contemporary music. Not entirely, but almost. And I, I love this program because it is very much a, a snapshot of where the trumpet community is at the moment. You are what you eat, and I think as a musician, you are what you play, what you're, what you're passionate about. It doesn't stop in 1950 as right. it does in, in, in most other trumpet studios. And it almost stops in earlier than that. You almost yeah. stop at Mahler from many well, classical we, domains. Well, we also have to, we have to ask ourselves what is contemporary music exactly. At one point, I thought that contemporary trumpet music started with Peter Maxwell Davies' Opus One. Uh, which is a trumpet sonata, mm. and um, and this is from 1950s. Then I decided, no, it, it should be defined differently for each person, maybe with the music of our lifetime. So then for me, it would be music after December of 1953. Now I've abandoned all of that, and I think that contemporary music is anything that's still wet, you know, it has to be, to really be considered contemporary music, it still has to be having its first or second performance. Really? Um, so yeah. what would you call anything that's not yeah, in P that P domain? Pierre Boulez is, and, and Donatoni. Or and, John Adams, something from the sure. 90s, Steve Reich, 80s. Yeah, and, and, and I respect their music and its music. You see, I think that all music is period music. It's not just Baroque music that has 
right. period performance. I think you hear you hear the the music of Mortsabotnik and you hear very much period electronics. It's electronic music. We think, oh, it's new. No, it's not. It's been around for a long time. And the, the sounds that he's creating are very much from that period. And the same thing with, with Steve Reich, who's still with us, but he's established his voice as being one that's a voice more of the end of the 20th century. How do these concepts get in the way once we move on? I mean, what will someone call the so-called era after contemporary music? Because at one point, modern music was, well, exactly what it sounds like. And yeah. if I explain that to someone and I say, well, modern music is before 1950 or so, or before, as you said, maybe like 1970, 80, around Steve Reich, what at what point do you call this this little sliver behind us something else but not quite contemporary or are words not yeah. even helpful at that I, point? I think words aren't helpful. I, yeah. I, I don't want to label things too carefully because then we live with our labels. I am interested though that there are composers that are writing this afternoon so they're contemporary composers that are still using the techniques of the 19th century. Yeah. And so they're fresh voices, but it's hard for me to consider them to be contemporary voices. Fresh and contemporary can mean different things for me. Yeah. And then there are other composers that are writing absolutely between the notes and for all the so-called extended techniques, which even the term extended technique has you know, is a trap in a way because, you know, extended from whom? You know, it's not extended for everyone. But but there is the the notation and not the style, not the voices, but the notation of the 19th century, even the 18th century, that's still being used by people that are penning music as we speak. And I don't know what to do with that exactly. They could have an excellent new voice and then I'm going to love their music. But it's hard for me to consider that as contemporary music. Yeah. When it's in the same vat as Rebecca Saunders or Marc Andre or, mm -hmm. you know, some of the real experimentalists. So at Chosen Vale, Often the ink is still wet, but that's not that's not a precursor to coming to Chosen Vale. No, the precursor certainly not. Is playing the trumpet or playing percussion also. Yeah, mm -hmm. and playing playing really well, and then you bring your repertoire. And if you're interested in the music of Franz Joseph Haydn, let's go, let's go and really explore that music. But like I say, so many of our our people have evolved past that. You remember Tarkovi, Jan, er, Janos. Uh, Tomasz Popovi. Tomasz. Of course. You remember when he was a student at Bard. Absolutely. And he was yeah. playing pretty conventional trumpet music. Yeah. And now he's evolved past that. And he came to Chosen Vale and played all of his newest stuff. And then Peter Eitvosh just wrote a, 
a really interesting piece for him. Pretty phenomenal recordings coming out of that guy. Oh, you know it. He has a tremendous voice. That's... And, and he, and I can cite another, you know, very large handful, or maybe larger than a handful, yeah. um, that are doing the same, that are creating inspiring composers to write in, in very unusual ways because they're able to, to conceive of the trumpet in a non-traditional fashion. And let's talk about recordings a little bit because you have a very famous trumpet recording, The Art of Trumpet Playing. Yeah, I, I recorded the music that I knew and that I played well. I also liked the Baroque yeah. at that point in my life. I think that people gravitate towards the music of their technique. There are many new trumpeters now that have very evolved trumpet techniques, and then they search for composers that want to explore that technique with them and create a piece, not entirely collaboratively, but uh, create music with composers who are sympathetic and can, can conceive of music being, being played out of traditional technique. Do you think that there's a similar difficulty almost because a lot of Baroque music is so far back we almost don't quite have a grasp on what the composer's intention was, whereas maybe with something like Richard Strauss we, we Well, no, I think, I think we understand the Baroque very well. Yeah? And, yeah, I do. And I think that where we started to misunderstand the Baroque was when we started playing, you know, Baroque music on modern instruments, as I did. Now, I played a lot of violin music and a lot of oboe music and a lot of flute music on the trumpet back yeah. then with my recordings like this because the natural trumpet, of course, didn't have those notes. Even then, the amount of liberty almost seems vast compared to if you were going to perform the Haydn, for example. There's a wealth of, and body of kind of stylistic knowledge and recordings and, well, and Western, writings Well, it. not from recordings, but... But first of all, the rope period for me was very liberating when I was doing this music because there was hardly any notation. Yeah. The composer isn't showing you how to play it. That didn't really happen until the 19th century that we're having so many sforzandi and accents <laughs> and you know crescendi, diminuendi, and forte pianos and you know, all the things that we find in, in romantic notation that are reflections of the way the composer's hearing it in, in, the, in the Baroque period, it was just the, the figured bass and a, and, a, and a line or an accompaniment and, and lines, and you figure it out on your own. Even instrumentation back at that point, you know, what was basso continuo? It was often much different than, you know, a harpsichord and a cellist, you know. Or an organist, you know, it could be twelve people, and people would orchestrate the music the way they wanted to do it, and yeah. they would play it with the freedom that was afforded to, to them from the composers because they're not locking it down, but they were playing within the, the limitations or with the the opportunities presented by playing in just intonation 
with a, with a, the trumpets and horns, or or playing with gut strings with the uh, with all the strings and the variations of articulation that were possible with that type of string, and so that's the music that I was playing. I was I was interested in exploring that world. I was listening to that world a lot at the time, uh, attending a lot of concerts, but I never got into playing the Baroque trumpet because I was a coward. And I thought of the Baroque trumpet as being something much harder than it is because I only attempted it a few times. I, I made a very well, infamous recording with Josh Rifkin a nun such when he was doing the Bach cantatas um, with one on a part in the choir, and the, oh, that the symphonia from cantata, whatever it was, that was used later in different settings for organ. That piece, the trumpets play. All they do is outline the chord. Yeah. Bum, bum, beam. This is hard to do on the Baroque trumpet because we were picking out harmonics like this. And I won't name names, but <laughs> there were three of us on that recording session. I was playing second trumpet. And there were three of us on that recording session. And one of us would miss every single passage we played. It was a disaster. And finally, Joanna Nickrens, who was producing that particular recording and had done some of my, my recordings, I was the trumpet player that she knew. So she came over the intercom and said, uh, Eddie, uh, should we um, maybe rehearse this a little bit or should we just keep getting tape? And I said, I think just keep getting tape is gonna be what you're gonna have to do because it's not going to get better. None of us had the skill to play this. They edited together a performance that everything was there, and it actually sounds So they cut tape? Good. Oh, cut? It was, every time the trumpet oh. played, it was from some other take. Then when I went to London, I was teaching at the Royal Academy of Music, playing the natural trumpet was a requisite, I mean, absolutely requ required of all trumpet majors there. Um, because there was so much work in London for people to play with all the early music groups. Um, and so they had a tutor there and a community um, of musicians, and the students learned to play this music on the trumpet, and they learned it quickly. And they taught me that, oh, I should have gotten on this train because it's uh. not so hard to get on it. And in fact, I think that playing the second Brandenburg on the natural F trumpet is maybe a little bit easier than trying to play it on the piccolo trumpet, because you're 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 living in just intonation when you're playing it on the nat, and when you're playing it on the piccolo trumpet, you're dealing with all kinds of compromises of intonation and and a squirrely little sound, and so I'm very sorry that I didn't I didn't get into that. Well, I'm sure everyone will get on their keyboards and find that recording as quickly as possible so that they can listen. Yeah, well, if, if, if with that little bit of information, if that gives them enough of a hint and, and they can find it, mazel tov. I mean, ah, boy, I'll tell you, though, during that recording session, it was just, 
throw it to the wall and see if it would stick. It was that bad. That is not. And the rest the of the band was good. The rest of the band oh, was no. terrific. Oh no, that's the worst. No, they were all fine. It was you don't just want the to be that section. section. But it sounds it like you learned a lesson eventually. Yeah. Well, hmm. I didn't. I didn't pursue the baroque trumpet. Um, and eventually, I used to be deeply into the music of Handel and Bach. Um, I'm still into the music of Handel and am immersed in the music of Bach, but my musical heroes evolved and I started getting more deeply interested in other symphonists. And as I moved with my interest more into the 19th century and then eventually into the 20th century, um, uh, yeah, I didn't see any reason to continue to play Baroque music and to be interested in that. But the freedom of not having notation is, is marvelous. Much more like playing jazz. Yeah. But, but um, a lot of leeway. Well, Ed, we've been talking here for an hour and a half. Just pretty amazing. Yikes. That's far longer than any other one. I think I am going to split it into two. I think it'll be a good idea. Oh, or the, just pick out the things that are cognizant. <laughs> oh, it was all cognizant. Are you kidding? I had it. I, I, the only time I've ever done a podcast. I know. I saw that on Trumpet Herald. Someone posted about it when I was. Okay, uh, well, it, up. I, I, it was for Reeves out in California. Mm -hmm. And the guy that was doing it is the son of you know, um, a friend. And I thought, oh yeah, I'll, I'll go and do that. And I said, well, how much time are we going to spend? And he said, oh, we probably, normally these are about a half an hour. And I said, okay, great. And an hour and a half later, I was still talking <laughs> and, and they were asking me to stop. You know? No, it's great. That's More enough. is better. But um, then I listened to that podcast and I was appalled to hear how often I would say, and, um, and, um, and I think I played this, um, this piece that was, uh, that I thought was interesting. And then I, um, um, <laughs> went, and I thought, oh my God, I sound like a moron. It makes you appreciate people who speak on radio, radio hosts, and people who often take interviews who don't use filler words, who speak coherently and really make a career out of talking on tape. You speak beautifully, and I was surprised that, not surprised that- I edit very heavily. Yeah? Yeah. I, I'll take out a shameless amount of ums and ands and all of that. Okay. Definitely. Well, do so this time. <laughs> I will, you are very good. This was a great conversation. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks for coming on Sound Mind and having me in your home, in quotation marks. <laughs> My home away from home. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice being here. Thanks so much for listening. If you've been enjoying Sound Mind and would like to support it, you can find our website at CameronWestMusic.com slash SoundMind, or you can support us on Patreon at Patreon.com slash SoundMind. <laughs>